Welcome once again to Quarantined Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. I want to start tonight with a moment of thought for those lost in the Buffalo Massacre. I don't have anything profound or important to say about this, but the ideas behind this action are so repulsive, I think it's important to say out loud, especially as a white person, that people of color are valid and true Americans. And the thought that they are not is just ridiculous. There is nothing that justifies the taking of lives in any kind of non-explicitly defensive manner. And even then, steps should be taken to try to not end someone else's life. And to do something like that simply because you don't respect them because of the color of their skin is just deplorable. There's no other word. I mean, it is the best word. And in case it needs to be said, again, the amount of melanin in one's skin, even the composition of one's ancestry, does not have anything to do with who the person is as an actual person who is part of the community. And who they are as a person is the only thing that people should be judged on, if they need to be judged at all. We should try not to judge people as much as we can, though I'm terrible at that, I'll admit. admit. And again, race is 100% a social construct. You cannot tell anything about a person by looking at their skin color other than potentially the amount of time that they can stand outside before they start to get a sunburn. That's pretty much it. Just like you can't tell what person's health is just by looking at them, you cannot tell anything about a person by looking at the color of their skin other than, again, what their possible amount of melanin is and thus how good they are at uh, being able to withstand the sun and literally the color of their skin. Okay, so now that we've talked about that for a brief moment, um, again, I don't have anything profound to say, so I don't want to belabor the point, but I just think it's it would be weird not to talk about it, given that it happened so recently and is such a terrible sign of just hatred and I mean at the end of the day it is a misunderstanding of science there is no scientific basis for treating people with different colored skin differently from you there is no black race there is no Asian race there is just the human race and I know that's a platitude but it's the truth and I just wish people uh, would understand that. Okay, let's let's move on 
let's start with our regularly scheduled programming of talking about COVID. And so, yes, we're talking about our constant companion these days. Again, cases are on the rise, so it is still important for us to learn as much as we can about this deadly disease. U.S. officials, sorry, the U.S. officially crossed the grim milestone of more than one million deaths from the disease recently. This is the largest official number for any country in the world. Though, like the U.S., there are many countries that have underreporting issues. Certainly, it's suspected that many more people have died in India, for instance, uh, though the combination of a government that is, uh, I'll just say it, uh, in my opinion, not great at telling the truth, and, of course, the real uh, stumbling block, which is that a lot of India remains extremely rural in nature. And so it's very hard to get good data out of very rural areas. Um, and so the official count is at just over half a million, but some suspect it might be several million people um, when all is said and done. But the U.S. has still done terribly for what it could have done, given the fact that we live in one of the most highly industrialized nations in the world. And um, it's just a really damning um, condemnation of our society and Americans' ability to turn everything into politics. <sighs> and everything as a us-versus-them scenario. But we have to keep moving forward. Now, actually, again, um, I did want to mention another point with India, because I don't want to say that America is alone in being the worst, the very worst, but I also don't want to sugarcoat the fact that America has been really terrible in its response. But uh, for one thing, in India, the government actually had an official stance to promote the use of homeopathic medicine for both preventing and treating the disease. And so this is something that I was um, tuned into uh, recently. Someone was talking about it. I don't remember where it was, unfortunately. And so then I went and I looked it up when I was looking at this story, and it turns out, yes, they actually had official pam pamphlets from the um, Bureau of uh, Traditional Medicine. I, it's called something else. I don't remember offhand. but And they actually sent out pamphlets telling people what kinds of homeopathic remedies to use. And it's just so distressing that in the 21st century, People are still trying to make these sorts of things work. Um, it's crazy. Oh, I know what it was. I was watching a really interesting video on uh, the history of homeopathy. And of course, uh, one of the big arguments for homeopathy uh, at the time, which is frankly was valid at the time, was that it was actually better than modern medicine at that point. Because modern medicine at that point was a lot of bloodletting and uh, 
emetics and things like that. And so people who were just vaguely sick could often be killed by what was supposed to be the cure. Whereas obviously because homeopathic remedies didn't have any of that, they didn't actively kill people. And so they were actually better than, uh, the quote unquote, uh, real medicine of the time. But this is the 21st century and we are no longer in a place where having something like homeopathy being anywhere near as efficacious as real medicine. And so it's time to put that in the past and let go. Okay. Sorry. That was a tangent. Let's turn to some actual science about the disease. First off, researchers at Linköping University in Sweden, LIU, have found that the body's immune system can affect the spike protein on the surface of SARS-CoV-2, which can then produce a misfolded protein called amyloid. The study is published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Those with severe and long-term COVID-19 have been found to have damaged areas of their body beyond the lungs, including their heart, kidney, and brain. And they also exhibit what's called disturbed blood coagulation. And so the researchers study diseases caused by misfolded proteins, including Alzheimer's disease, um, as soon as I heard the word amyloid, I immediately thought of that. Um, so you may have heard about tau and beta amyloids associated with Alzheimer's in the past. And so they found that many of the symptoms of COVID-19 matched with those found in diseases caused by such misfolded proteins. Now, an amyloid is a generic term for a mis misfolded protein. Proteins, in order to function properly, must have a specific three-dimensional shape. However, scientists know of over 30 proteins that have an alternative shape, which is connected to illness. And so, um, if you remember, the way that proteins are folded um, is very specific. And in fact, uh, one of the big uh, original uses of AI uh, I think they still do it, but one of the big things that AI was immediately put into service to work on was uh, the solving the puzzle of folding proteins and finding ways to create novel proteins and all of that sort of thing, because it's a very um, intense prospect. And so sometimes the process goes wrong, and when it goes wrong then those proteins can cause illness. Um, and so the researchers used computer simulations to discover that the spike protein contains seven different sequences, which can be turned into amyloid. Three of these substances then produced amyloids when experimentally tested. The protein sections produced fibrils, a hallmark of amyloid misfolding. They found that, as in Alzheimer's, the body cuts up large proteins into smaller pieces. In this case, the immune system is cutting up the spike protein into smaller pieces, which turn out to be the sequence that is most likely to produce amyloids. 
they found that an enzyme called neutrophil elastase is released in large quantities by white blood cells called neutrophils, which are deployed by the immune system early in the infection process. When the researchers combined neutrophil elastase and spike proteins in a test tube, fibrils developed. We have never seen such but perfect but scary fibrils as these ones from the amyloid-producing SARS-CoV-2 spike protein and pieces thereof. The fibrils, starting from the full-size spike protein, branched out like limbs on a body. Amyloids don't usually branch out like that. We believe it is due to the characteristics of the spike protein, said Per Hammerstrom, professor at the Department of Physics, Chemistry, and Biology at LIU. Previous research, including a study by South African researchers, indicated that part of the disease process might be the development of small blood clots caused by the spike protein. Blood contains fibrin proteins, which help with blood coagulation, and that's usually dissolved when the wound begins to heal by another chemical called plasmin. And so plasmin is also a component in the blood. And so when the LIU researchers added amyloid-producing protein pieces to the spike protein with these blood products, they found that the fibrin coagulate was no longer able to be broken down in the normal way by plasmin. So this may be the mechanism by which SARS-CoV-2 can cause micro blood clots, which have been observed in those with both severe and long-term COVID infections. We see that the spike protein, when affected by our own immune system, can produce amyloid structures, and that this can potentially affect our blood coagulation. We believe that this discovery is significant for many fields of research, and we hope that other researchers will examine the questions that it raises, said Sophie Nystrom, who is an associate professor at IFM and and another author on the study. There are some limitations to the study, though. For one, it was all in vitro rather than in vivo. So basically no animal models were used. Uh, Certainly no human um, subjects were used. And so everything was done algorithmically and in the test tube. But that doesn't mean that it isn't um, a really interesting and good effect that has been discovered. And so they note that all common coronaviruses which infect humans have such sequences, but clearly do not produce such a strong effect. And so the way that they uh, hypothesize that this is a different version is that they actually found a unique segment in SARS-CoV-2, which might account for the change. Um, They also noted that amyloidosis is rather common in elderly populations and that it has already been a matter of discussion in relation to viral infections. And finally, they also noted that those who have been infected with COVID-19 are more likely to develop type 2 diabetes, 
which is an amyloid-associated disease. Learning more about the specific ways in which COVID can infect and harm people can hopefully lead to new and better treatments. So that is really interesting and I think has a lot of good potential for, um, like they said, for treatment uh, research. Now, another group of researchers publishing in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences have probed how populations with different genetic profiles have responded to infections with SARS-CoV-2. And they've actually found variation in four important genes, which may affect how a person is affected by being, by being infected, sorry, (laughs) is affected by being infected, and which quite possibly shows evolutionary adaptations to encounters in the past with similar viruses. Now, researchers at the University of Pennsylvania and colleagues looked at genomic variants in four genes that are important in the body's response to COVID-19 infection, including the ACE2 gene. The team used genomic data from populations around the world to see if they could discover evolutionary signs of variation. This study exemplifies my lab's approach to genomic studies. We use what happens in nature and signatures of natural selection to identify functionally important variants that impact health and disease, says Sarah Tishkoff, a co-corresponding author on the work and a Penn Integrates Knowledge University professor at both the Perelman School of Medicine and the School of Arts and Sciences. Nature has already done a lot of the screening and can give us clues as to what parts of a gene like ACE2 are important for infection. And so one of the really interesting and I think uh, important things about this study is that it is the first of its kind to include ethnically diverse Africans, as well as a highly diverse data set from the Penn Medicine Biobank, which includes often overlooked groups. Giorgio Sirugu, I'm sorry, Sirugo of the Perelman School of Medicine first hypothesized that there was a genetic basis for one's reaction to the virus before it was even designated a pandemic. The idea is really a classic one, that infectious diseases have a host genetic component, said Sirugo, a co-corresponding author on the paper. He reached out to Tishkoff and others to form a plan to tackle the question at the population genetics level. In addition to ACE2, the researchers looked at three other genes, TMPR-SS2, DPP4, and LY6E, which play a role in how SARS-CoV-2 enters cells. I'm sure I probably mispronounced one of those, and if you're uh, really into biology, you're groaning, and I apologize. Um, And so, again, rather impressively, the researchers looked at genomic data from 2012 ethnically diverse Africans from a variety of cultures, along with 15,977 people of African and European descent from the Penn Medical Biobank. This population all had attached electronic health records. 
And so looking at the gene ACE2, they found 41 variants that affect the amino acid sequence of the protein. At the global level, these variants were quite rare, but three variants were found to be common in the Baca people um, of Cameroon. Uh, they were formerly referred to uh, by the pejorative pygmies, um, but they refer to themselves as the Baca, um, I believe, and so um, definitely want to uh, call people what they call themselves rather than uh, continue with uh, Eurocentric uh, <laughs> ideas, especially since um, this is one of the important ways in which we normalize uh, African people and African-American people as just regular people who deserve 100% of respect, uh, as we were saying at the top of the hour. You know, it's just nice to call someone what they want to be called. Uh, it just seems like the most basic of uh, courtesy. Though, of course, we could go into an entire tangent rant about the use of pronouns. Uh, but that's not what we're doing tonight. We are talking about COVID. This really stood out to us, said Tishkoff. This is a group that lives in a tropical environment and continues to forage for bushmeat, spending a lot of time in the forest. They're likely exposed to all kinds of viruses introduced from animals. And of course, SARS-CoV-2 is believed to have jumped from an animal to humans. So even though this population wouldn't have been exposed to this exact virus in the past, they could have been exposed to similar types of viruses. The researchers found that the genes had been positively selected for, indicating the fitness advantage they confer. Not only did they show signs of conservation in the genes themselves, but also changes in the regulatory regions which affect how and where the genes are expressed. They found evidence of what's called purifying selection, where variants with negative impacts on fitness are weeded out and removed via evolutionary pressures. We saw significant signals of natural selection in the regulatory regions of ACE2, said Chao Zhang, a postdoc in Tishkoff's lab and co-lead author. I personally think that I personally think that is going to be really important in thinking about clinical outcomes. Now, again, I cannot stress enough how refreshing it is that this work was done in conjunction with African researchers, as we all know that science continues to have a real problem with Afro, I'm sorry, with American slash Eurocentrism. From an African and specifically Central African perspective, the discovery of three non-synonymous variants at ACE2 in Cameroonian indigenous populations is significant, says Alfred K. Gemnashi, a co-author and professor of neurology and neuroscience at Cameroon's University of Yaoundé. The regulatory variants found at ACE2 do suggest targets of recent natural selection in some African populations, and this may have important disease risk or resistance implications that warrant further investigation. Now, in East Asian populations, the researchers found a more rare variant that may increase ACE2 expression, which could influence how easily SARS-CoV-2 virus can infect host cells. To know for sure, we need to test the function of this variant 
and see whether we can get some indication that changes in this region are related to COVID infection susceptibility and severity, says Tishka Lab postdoc Yuan King Feng, the paper's other co-lead author. The variation in non-coding regions could have an influence on which organs the gene is expressed in, and thus could be a, a factor in how COVID is able to affect these systems. Because as we know, we talked about earlier, it can infect the heart, it can um, affect the kidneys, it can affect the brain, and all of these other areas of the body, not just the lungs. And beyond COVID, ACE2 receptors are also involved in blood pressure regulation. And so more research on this aspect could also help benefit health outcomes in that area as well. They also found signs of evolutionary pressures on coding and regulatory regions of the TMPR-SS2 gene, including some very old variants that emerged just after the split between humans and other Greeks apes. There are a lot of human-specific substitutions in that protein, which is really intriguing, says Tishkov. Now, dozens more variations were also found in the DPP4 and LY6E genes as well. The team then looked at medical information for those in the Penn Medicine Biobank data. Now, this work was conducted early during the spread of COVID, and so it didn't include data about COVID responses from these patients, but they were still able to make certain connections. With our data, we can look at the variants that were identified by Sarah's team and link those with clinical data, says Anurag Verma of Penn's Perlman School of Medicine, a co-first author on the paper. They found associations with conditions that have connections or overlap with covid including respiratory disorders, infections with respiratory syncytial virus, and liver disease. The clinical potential of this work is pretty exciting. From a medical point of view, you could identify novel therapeutic targets or even provide some personalized medicine depending on which variant a person had, Sarugo says. And as I've stressed, this was made possible by having a wide and diverse pool of population data. That is a deeply important and unique aspect of this study, Tishkov says. Okay, let's move now from COVID to another disease that has actually sprung up recently. But um, actually, before that, we're going to take a short break for some PSAs and some show promos. Uh, But when we come back, we are going to talk about a new outbreak of monkeypox. Um, It's nothing to freak out about yet, uh, but do come back or uh, do stay tuned and listen to our lovely commercial-esque break. (laughs) It's not a commercial break. We don't have commercials. We are volunteers, and this is a non-commercial station. Um, But anyways, (laughs) uh, stay tuned, and I will be back in just a few moments. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them 
until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Table of Contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres, and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in the CD or tape player, each week presenting shows which can at times be organized and orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so, yet never dull. Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's Subculture Music Program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, and the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton, so come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. Okay, we are back. You are still listening, I hope, to Evidence-Based Radio. And as I noted before the break, we are going to be talking about monkeypox. It has a way more scary name um, (laughs) than it actually is, at least at the moment. So we're going to talk about it. A new outbreak of the disease has actually does have some public health officials alarmed, but we're going to talk about the various reasons in which this may be troubling and not. And so monkeypox causes far fewer fatalities and is much less transmissible than, say, COVID. Um, and especially uh, if you are thinking of its cousin, smallpox, which was really bad, it is much milder a much milder cousin to smallpox. 
And so it was first identified in Africa in the 1970s. And so it presents, like most pox diseases, as a distinct bumpy rash, which is usually accompanied by flu-like symptoms. Now, the thing about monkeypox is that the disease is generally zoonotic, meaning that it is passed from animal vector to humans, but with more than 100 people worldwide now having been diagnosed, researchers are concerned that something might have changed about the virus to make it more transmissible between humans. Uh, Fun fact, interestingly, despite its name, uh, the vector is usually rodents rather than monkeys. So uh, once again, rodents have uh, ruined the day. (laughs) Um, And so uh, I don't know if you know that whole, there's a whole um, argument about whether it was rodents or humans themselves that were uh, better at spreading the plague once rodents had brought the plague uh, to uh, Europe because there is obviously um, differences in how quickly the plague spread to different places. And so, um, you know, sometimes it might have been people moving from place to place and those people still had fleas on them. And those fleas then spread the disease to others because the true vector there, um, in the Black Plague at least, is the um, fleas. And so, yeah, there was an interesting article. I have to say I have not looked into it deeply enough to really talk about it thoroughly, but there was an assessment recently that suggested that less people than we think actually died during the Black Plague. Um, But certainly enough people died. Uh, Lots and lots of people died. And as much as that is a huge tragedy, it did lead to some uh, good things like, uh, you know, there's a really good argument to be made that part of uh, what came out of the Black Death and the loss of large portions of labor were better labor rights. And, um, you know, the kind of phasing out of feudal systems that uh, did not give workers any rights. And so it was kind of the beginning of uh, the idea that workers should have rights because there were less workers so they could demand rights. Um, And again, that's a whole nother uh, podcast. (laughs) That is a whole nother podcast. Um, And so there are so many podcasts that I would start if I had time. But um, as you know, I struggle just to be able to uh, get this one out every week, and I apologize uh, for those weeks when I just don't make it. Okay, let us get back to monkeypox. And so, yeah, in the past, humans to human spread has occurred, but has been quite limited. We don't know that it is spreading more easily from person to person yet. That is one possible explanation but I am not aware of any evidence to support that idea yet, Andrew Pavia, an infectious disease doctor at the University of Utah, told Gizmodo. Um, and so uh, I wonder if he's worked on Parvo. Uh, Parvo is a really interesting uh, rodent-carried disease that's usually found mostly in the Southwest. 
Um, but anyways, again, getting back to monkey pox, the disease takes around one to three weeks to develop in patients and usually lasts for around two weeks. Some variants have up to a 10% fatality rate, which is not insignificant, uh, but also not uh, something that people should be uh, freaking out about at this point. And in fact, some uh, seem to be more mild and have um, just a 1% fatality rate. And so, so far, no one has died during this outbreak. So that's a really good thing, obviously. Now, the disease is preventable by being inoculated with the smallpox vaccine, and it can actually be treated with receiving a vaccine after infection to prevent disease progression. And there are also antivirals that have been shown to be effective against uh, the disease. And so there are definitely treatments. Um, you know, I think probably some of those fatalities are people that are just not in a place where they can get treatment. Um, which is unfortunately a lot of places still, even in this day and age. <sighs> now, the these are important tools for public health officials, though, um, because they can help break chains of infection and thus minimize outbreaks. Now, some researchers believe that there actually hasn't been a change in the virus, but rather that humans have become less vigilant in administering smallpox vaccines due to the fact that it has been eradicated in the wild. And so uh, that's actually something that I've thought about. Um, and I think that we don't think enough about that we should still be giving people smallpox vaccines, uh, especially since there is still smallpox in laboratories in this world. And as we are seeing we still have a long way to go before we stop having conflicts and bad actors that do terrible things to people. And so the idea that smallpox could be weaponized, I think, is enough reason uh, to continue to give people the smallpox vaccine. But we haven't really been doing that. And so... Even though the vaccine gives broad immunity to pox virus infections, populations that have waning immunity may suddenly be vulnerable to this milder version because the people who had uh, the vaccine are basically dying out. You know, they're older people who are dying out, and the younger generation just isn't being uh, immunized. And one of the other things, though, it could be is that it could be tied to a specific animal vector that has yet to be identified. And so um, I don't know if you remember this. I remembered it only when I was talking about it this time, um, when I was you know, reading about this outbreak. It had completely, I had completely forgotten about the 2003 outbreak. So this was an outbreak in the U.S., and that was caused purely by exposure to infected pet prairie dogs. And so um, I definitely remember that after I had started reading about this. I was like, oh, yeah, that was monkeypox, wasn't it? Now, there's also evidence on the flip side that there may have been human-to-human -human transmission and that it actually may even have been through sexual or intimate contact. And so the outbreak in the UK and Spain has mostly involved 
young gay and bisexual men. And unfortunately, they are often the bellwethers for infectious diseases. Um, it's for, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, including the fact that, you know, obviously this is not a population that has the best access to healthcare, um, or is willing to go to healthcare. Um, but they definitely, the gay population, uh, has had a lot of exposure to novel diseases in the past. And, um, yeah, it's really unfortunate. And, um, but of course it could just turn out to be that that is literally just a coincidence that the person who, uh, was infected first was a young gay person, uh, and that they are just in that kind of space. And that's how it's, how it's moving is through that space because the first person in that population to get it was a young gay man. Um, this is again, not anything to stigmatize these people for, because this is just a kind of thing where, you know, viruses are extremely opportunistic. I mean, that's, that's their whole bread and butter. So if they can find an easy population to, uh, in fact, they will do it. Um, and so of course, one of the big issues is that we don't know. We just don't know. Pavia notes that we'll need old fashioned epidemiological and medical detective work to figure it out. Contact tracing might shed light on how the virus is spreading between humans, and work in the lab can look at the possible genetic changes and whether the virus behaves differently in different animals. But for now, given what we know today, there is no reason to panic or for most people to have any worries. But it is early days, so that may change, Pavia said. So, yeah, <laughs> um... I wouldn't rush to the doctor to demand a smallpox vaccine right now, uh, but it is something to keep an eye on. Uh, the first case was actually from the U.S. was in Massachusetts, uh, out in Boston, but that person most likely was infected in Canada. So they had recently returned from Canada or traveled from Canada. So um, again, this is not the zombie apocalypse. You don't need to start boarding up your homes and um, hoarding food. Uh <laughs> <laughs> it may be something that we have to look at. It may be something that we have to reconsider the fact that we need to be giving people uh, smallpox vaccines. I don't see any reason why we shouldn't. I don't think there's anything to indicate um, in the past that smallpox viruses had any kind of um, disease issues. So, um, you know, sometimes uh, you don't give a medicine anymore because it has side effects. And if you don't need to, why do it? But I don't think that smallpox, um, I know there's obviously the famous incident with the polio vaccine. Um, but, uh, I can't think of anything. I mean, smallpox vaccines were basically an absolute, uh, home run, uh, of good health, um, public health, and so, yeah, um, it might be that we just have to go back to doing that so that we don't have to deal with this in the future. Okay, so let's shift gears slightly and talk about a new material that has been developed to prevent the buildup of biofilms on medical devices. 
So as you probably know, the likelihood of catching an infection at a hospital is way higher than it should be. And often those infections are resistant to antibiotics. Around 1.7 million people a year are infected at hospitals or other care facilities, and around 100,000 of those people subsequently die. Two-thirds of those infections are from medical devices such as catheters, stents, heart valves, and pacemakers. And so these devices become covered by biofilms of harmful bacteria. Now, biofilms are a thin layer of densely packed microbial cells encapsulated within a polymer matrix of proteins, nucleic acids, and polysaccharides. And thus, biofilms are notoriously hard to clean off of surfaces and are also better at defending themselves from antibacterial agents, including antibiotics. But a team at UCLA has developed a method for depositing a thin layer of Zwitterionic material onto the surface of a medical device and then permanently binding the layers using ultraviolet light irradiation. The surface prevents bacteria and other harmful organic materials from adhering to the surface and thus prevents the production of biofilms that can cause infection. The details are published in the journal Advanced Materials. The The researchers tested the new coating both in the lab and in clinical settings. The zwitterion, such a good word to say, uh, the zwitterion polymers are very biocompatible and absorb water very tightly, thus forming a thin barrier of water on the surface that prevents bacteria, fungi, and proteins from adhering to that surface. It's also non-toxic and relatively low in cost compared to other treatments. So in the lab, they applied the surface treatment to several common medical devices and tested their resistance to a variety of bacteria, fungi, and proteins. They found that the treatment reduced biofilm growth between 80% and 93%, depending on the strain of microbes. The modified surfaces exhibited robust resistance against microorganisms and proteins, which is precisely what we sought to achieve, said Richard Kanner, UCLA's professor of material innovations and a senior author. The surfaces greatly reduced or even prevented biofilm formation. And our earlier clinical results have been outstanding. And so while they had a small sample size, again, the results are pretty outstanding. (laughs) They recruited 16 long-term urinary catheter users who were given new silicone catheters with the zwitteronic surface treatment. These are actually produced by a company Kanner has set up and already have received FDA approval. Ten of the patients described using the catheter as either much better or very much better, and 13 chose to continue using the new catheter over commercially available options after the end of the study. One patient came to UCLA a few weeks ago to thank us for changing her life, something that as a material scientist I never thought was possible, Kenner said. Her previous catheter would become blocked after four days or so. She was in pain and needed repeated medical procedures to replace them. With our surface treatment, she now comes in every three weeks 
and her catheters work perfectly without encrustation or occlusion, a common occurrence with her previous ones. And so this is a common issue not only with catheters, but also with other medical devices, which once inserted or implanted can basically become a cozy home for biofilm growth. Once the pathogens are comfy, they begin to pump out harmful cells, which lead to recurring infections in the patients. When this happens, the standard treatment is to administer antibiotics to try and combat the infection. But again, as we have talked about for many, many long hours on this podcast, the more that we use antibiotics, the more likely it is that we're creating antibiotic-resistant superbugs. Um, so yeah, um, we have talked about this a lot, uh, the very real possibility that if we don't do something, uh, we could end up in a post-antibiotic era. And that's something that keeps me up at night sometimes. Uh, not, not actually, but it could, trust me. Um, and so, yeah, this is like talking like medieval times where you could get a cut on your finger that could kill you. And that is an extreme example, but it is actually possible. Um, so yeah, anything we can do to avoid that is crucial. The beauty of this technology, Kanner said, is that it can prevent or minimize the growth of biofilm without the use of antibiotics. It protects patients using medical devices and therefore protects all of us against microbial resistance and the proliferation of superbugs. <sighs> because multi-drug resistant bugs are a real problem. Um, so, yeah. Um... For instance, in TB, I was just reading a story about how um, if we had better uh, ways in which to test for TB in children, that we could really reduce their um, infection rate with multidrug resistant tuberculosis, which would be a really good thing because especially in places like Africa, that is a huge problem. Um, especially since it is often coupled with people who have AIDS. And so they are dealing with having both AIDS and multidrug resistant tuberculosis. And as you can probably uh, envision, that that doesn't work very well. Um, it's, it's real hard on the body and a lot of people die. And, um, you know, we still have a long way to go in order to reach things like health equity and to understand how to deal with a lot of diseases. And so um, for every bit that I say we live in the 21st century um, and we should be better than this, there are still plenty of ways in which um, we are incapable of being better than this because uh, there are still a lot of things that we don't know and a lot of people that we can't reach. Um, and I don't have any good solutions for that at the moment. Obviously, I am not, um, you know, I am not a Bill Gates. I am not a, um, Jimmy Carter. Ah, oh, Jimmy Carter. Um, <laughs> that is a man who has used his life well. Um, you know, I may not agree with him on some things. Um, 
you know, I am not theologically minded, but man has that man put in the work. Um, you know, he, he's, he's who you point to when someone says, uh, by their fruits shall you know, shall you know them? Um, because he's really done the work and yeah, sorry, there, there's a lot of bad things going on in the world. (laughs) right now and I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed and so sometimes it's just nice to reflect on someone who is awesome and doing really good work um so yeah and there are lots of people out there who are doing that and there are lots of good things going on in the world and lots of great science being done in the world um but also whenever I think of uh, antibiotic drug resistance, I think about how we're not really paying enough attention to that, much in the same way that we're not paying enough attention to global warming. And uh, yeah, the fact that it's going to be almost 100 degrees both on uh, Saturday and Sunday of this weekend is a little bit terrifying and bad. And, um, you know, there was somewhere else, um, I think it was Argentina was having like really bad cold snaps. And again, global warming doesn't mean warming in specifics. It means changes to climate, violent changes to climate, swings in climate. And it does, in fact, eventually lead to everywhere being actually warmer. Um, but yeah, so... Oh, it's a little bit disconcerting. I'm definitely going to have to find a basement or a room with an air conditioner to just literally hide in all weekend because uh, the heat and I are not good friends. Um, so yeah. All right. I think I've rambled for enough on this topic. Uh, let us move on and talk about dolphins now. Uh, so yeah. Humans are not the only species that uh, seems to use medicines. And so uh, we have a recent instance of dolphins that were filmed using a kind of coral, actually several kinds of coral, to transfer antibacterial chemicals produced by the coral polyps to their own uh, skin. And so Indo-Pacific bottlenose dolphins living in the northern Red Sea off of the coast of Egypt have been observed rubbing their bodies against specific kinds of coral. This is the first observation of zoopharmacognosy uh, reported in cetaceans, and that's the fancy word for uh, non-human animals using medicine. Dolphins appear to be selectively matching certain body parts to specific corals, said Angela Ziltner, a wildlife biology at biologist at the University of Zurich, they seem to be very aware of what they are choosing. The more sensitive calves aged under one year have not been observed engaging in the group rubbing on these particular organisms. Instead, they watch the adults doing the rubbing. So, learning the behavior. The researchers watched as the dolphins repeatedly rubbed their whole bodies on gorgonian coral, and their heads bellies, and tail fins on leather corals and sponges. They noted that the dolphins avoided corals and sponges that were near species like fire coral, which, as the name uh, probably telegraphs, is actually uh, venomous. And so probably if you touch it, your skin feels like it's on fire. 
Um, so yeah, don't go, don't go near that. <laughs> and so they suspect that by rubbing against the coral, that the dolphins are forcing the coral polyps to release mucus. The researchers examined this mucus and found that some of the bioactive compounds within it actually had my antimicrobial properties. Repeated rubbing allows the active metabolites to come into contact with the skin of the dolphins, said Gertrude Morlock, an analytic chemist at Justice Liebig University Geisen in Germany, and a co-author of the paper. These metabolites could help them achieve skin homeostasis and be useful for prophylaxis or auxiliary treatment against microbial infections. And so they even observed dolphins waiting in line to swim through certain areas of coral, because apparently these dolphins are actually, uh, you know, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, the researchers were actually able to do this work um, and observe the dolphins so uh, sort of intimately, uh, frankly, because of COVID. <laughs> and so the area, this area of the Red Sea is heavily trafficked by tourists. Uh, but during part of the pandemic, the area obviously cleared out some. And so that made it easier for the researchers to work. Um, so again, silver linings of COVID is that it gave researchers better ability to do some things. Um, and so one of the things that they're going to have to look at is uh, what would change if the coral was no longer available global warming again? Uh, and so would this have a large impact on the animal's health? And so, of course, as always, more research will be needed to uncover the secrets of this action by these, frankly, rather smarty pantses. Okay, that is all the time we have for this week. Thank you for listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Um, please make sure you stay cool this weekend. Uh, drink lots of water. Stay in the shade. Uh, take care of yourself. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.